If you haven't already, please open in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7, the verses that Danny just so eloquently read for us, verses 13 to 25. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles under chairs in front of you, under some of the chairs in front of you. It's a Christian Standard Bible there. And if you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible as our gift to you this morning. At the end of the movie, Saving Private Ryan, we see the man of the same name, much older and grayer than when he was a private in World War II, being rescued by a group of soldiers, some of whom lost their lives in the effort. He stands in a cemetery at Omaha Beach in Normandy in front of a white cross, a grave marker. That is one, as you can see, of rows upon rows, hundreds upon hundreds of crosses representing those who had fallen in the war against evil tyranny. As he kneels before the marker of the captain who was most directly responsible for his salvation, with his family in the background looking on, maybe you've seen the movie, he quietly speaks, my family is with me today. They wanted to come with me. To be honest with you, I, I wasn't sure how I would feel coming back here. Every day I think about what you said to me on that bridge. I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I've earned what you all did for me. As he gets up from his knees, but continuing to look down at the marker, his wife comes up and stands next to him. He turns with tears in his eyes and he pleads with her, tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. I've spent time with people near the end of their lives who have been granted the gift of some measure of knowing that their death is near, thus providing them time to reflect in a similar manner on their life. And often when we are with people in such moments, we are pressed upon by their situation and their reflections to consider our own days. This is how it is for humanity. In moments and experiences such as these may arouse the same pleading expressed by Private Ryan, creating in us the desire for similar affirmation from those around us. Tell me, I've lived a good life. Tell me I'm a good man or a good woman. I've said that so often to my wife. Tell me I'm a good husband, a good father, a good pastor. This desire to do good, which without exception often leads to frustration because as humans, we know how often we are not able to do the good things that we have hoped to do along with 
the desire to eliminate from our lives bad things, poor choices, perverse behaviors, and destructive habits. Despite our best efforts, exercising our wills with every bit of energy and effort that we can muster, humanity persists in doing things that it does not want to do. Can I get an amen? Why are we the way that we are? What explains such behavior? And what is the answer to such quandaries? Those are important questions. We pass laws as a society to crack down on bad behaviors, but bad actions and bad actors persist. And what we see instead in our day is a, our growing crime rates. Even as the number of laws increase. And we are left asking, why? Why do our laws and our systems of governance, which are supposed to guide and control behaviors, why do they fail? Why do they seem to only reveal more badness? Why are we collectively worse than we were before? Why don't we get better? And how do we get to that point at the end of our days, or God help us even along the way, without having to be filled with such regrets? I failed. There's so much. There was so much that I'd hoped to do. There was so much that I'd wished had been better, that I'd been better. Is it any wonder that there are tens of thousands of self-help books on Amazon.com? But is that the answer? Self-help? Is it any wonder that there are all kinds of programs that you can buy into that will provide the structures and boundaries and guidelines you need to live a better life, do better, accomplish more good, be more? But is that the answer? More structure? In other words, more law? Paul has spent a fair amount of time in this letter to the men and women of Rome describing the inability of laws, in this case, the law of God, to bring about an increase in the moral goodness of humanity. Rather, he has been quite strong in his argument that the law will only increase sin and bring about death. And right at the moment that he wanted to give us what will be, in fact, the answer to increasing our moral goodness, what will be, in fact, the power that will finally make us capable to do good and not evil, the word of hope that we've been waiting for right at that moment, instead of that, it is here in Romans 7 that we must pause to vindicate the law of God. For the law is not sin, a point that he proved in verses 7 and 12. And now in verses 13 to 25, he's going to address the question of whether the law is death itself. Does the law become death? Verse 13. Therefore, did what is good become death to me? Absolutely not. Once again, Paul is clear about the goodness of the law of God. It is what is good. And it was right for Israel, now remember my presupposition from last week, it's there in the service guide for you, that there is a broader eye at play in this text. It was right for Israel to want to embrace the law and to make it the way of life. The law wasn't the problem. The law is not death, absolutely not. On the contrary, verse 13, sin is 
in order to be recognized as sin, that's the first purpose, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that, that's the second purpose, through the commandment, sin might be sinful beyond measure. So we see in this statement a double purpose of God in the use of the law in the life of someone before faith and conversion. That was my second presupposition. We're talking about someone who's not yet a Christian here. You see, the way that sin would be flushed out into the open was by the law. Sin would be strengthened by the law, 1 Corinthians 15, 56. And using the law as a base of operations, as we learned last week in verse 8 and 11, sin would produce death in humanity. So that in this way, the strange purpose of God is to draw sin to its full height, that it would appear in in all its true colors, that, that sin would be seen to be sin. And God remarkably uses the law to do this. For it is the law that exposes sin for what it truly is and highlights the full measure of its brutality. To give an analogy from Michael Byrd, the law lures the assassin out into the open where he kills the intended victim, but therefore the identity of the assassin is revealed. That's what the law is doing, flushing sin out into the open. Do you see? Through the law, sin is exposed and called out for all to see it for exactly the killer that it is. Sin, not the law, is what becomes death to humanity presently and eschatologically. But sin, but sin using the law is not the only problem here. It's not the only reason that there is death. In the famous words of G.K. Chesterton, who was answering an article in the London Times, he answered this article with a very short letter. The article was, what, what's the problem with the world? Dear sir, regarding your article, what's wrong with the world? I am. I was about to make a pastor comment there and the little man at the desk just stopped it. <laughs> Romans seven fourteen. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave under sin. Paul further vindicates the law here, making it clear. The law is spiritual. In other words, the law is divine. The law is of God. Verse 12, it is holy, just, and good. We know that. But who is the we here? We know that the law is spiritual. I believe that Paul is mainly speaking here, primarily speaking of a Jew in the Adam Realm, remember our two realms, under sin or under Jesus, under law or under grace. Paul is speaking here primarily of a Jew in that Adam realm, under the reign of sin, part of Israel, under the law before coming to the Messiah. And as a Jew, Paul is identifying completely with Israel in that way. As I argued last week, I think that the we here can also be interpreted more broadly because all humanity, Jew or Gentile, right? We learn this in chapter 1, verse 19, that all humanity is aware that there is a God and that he exists. And we learn in Romans chapter 2, verse 15, that the law is written on the human heart, our consciences bearing witness to this truth. 
And in this way, we all, Jew and Gentile, before Jesus, know this. And recall what he said in Romans chapter 7, verse 5. For when we are in the flesh, sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit for death. So now that we're going to see that what will follow in verse 14 to 25 is an elaboration on that situation. Sinful passions arousing through the law, being aroused through the law in us, bearing fruit for death. That's what he's now elaborating on. For what it looks like for sinful passions and not the law to bear fruit for death in the life of an unbeliever. As he says here, as of the flesh, sold as a slave under sin. He's describing what it fundamentally looks like to live apart from the Messiah in the realm of sin, aided by the law as a slave to sin. In this way, Paul has argued that the law does not enable Israel or us to get out of that problem. It merely intensifies it. And Paul now elaborates on what that intensified problem looks like. Verse 15, look at it with me. For I do not understand what I am doing, said by most eight-year-olds and many 53-year-olds. Because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. In other words, here's what it looks like to be a slave under sin. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another, doing things I absolutely despise. I've said to you that I think Paul is mainly thinking here about the life of a Jew under the law before he comes to the Messiah. And in this way, it's his story too. But again, it is also the story of humanity proven by the very language he's using. Here's how one historian sheds light on this for us. Quote, Paul has described the problem of Israel under the law so that it looks exactly like the problem which every puzzled pagan moralist from at least Aristotle onwards had observed. There was a long tradition in Greek and Roman philosophy and poetry in which people complained, scratching their heads over it, that they could figure out what was the right thing to do, thus Romans 2.15, but for some reason or other, they couldn't manage to do it, thus Romans 7.5. Conversely, they could see with their mind that a certain course of action was wrong, and yet they went ahead and did it anyway. Paul had spent years in the debating halls of the ancient pagan world. He had listened on the street as people quoted snatches of poetry and popular philosophy. Now, as one of his most devastating and clever pieces of writing, so clever it runs right by a lot of readers to this day, try and read this text out, out loud fast. He offers an analysis of Israel's plight under the law, which ends up as saying, so this is the height <laughs> to which God's chosen people attain through their possession of the law the same height as the puzzled pagan moralist? Uh-huh. And the same height as the average American outside of Jesus too. Namely, in a state of confusion over their moral incapability. In a state of not understanding the problem of me. 
in a state that threatens to leave them at the end of their life, turning to some other significant person, pleading, tell me I've lived a good life. But wondering if they really have, knowing they really have not. That all of their attempts at self-help and all of their attempts to construct guidelines and codes and law have left them, have left them with a photo album filled with regrets. How, how did this happen? And how could it have been different? Well, the first step for someone under the law but apart from Messiah is to realize that the problem goes deeper. The problem is not the law outside of them but sin in them. Verse 16. Now if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. In other words, Humanity proves by its disobedience and inability to do good that the law is good because it was the law that informed that kind of right thinking and desiring, which makes the law a good thing and not something that brings death. And this leads to an aha moment because it underscores that my inability to do good cannot be blamed on the law. It seems the problem is me. But if it remains that I want to do that good thing that the law tells me that I should do, that seems to argue that I'm good, but yet I don't do it, that seems to argue that I'm bad. Goodness, what in the world is going on inside of me? Looking back on Israel and himself before Messiah, Paul reflects. So now I am no longer the one doing it. Also said by many eight-year-olds. The devil made me do it. <laughs> and a lot of 53-year-olds. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. Woo! With, with this text, Paul makes all the more vivid what he had already said of the unbeliever in 7.5. In the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit for death. So what does, just what does unbelieving humanity know? What does it know? Well, it knows that it's torn between the willing and the doing. What did Private Ryan say? I've tried to live my life the best I could. And what does Paul say? Your trying will only ultimately end in failure outside of the Messiah. Why? Because you are not your own, on your own. It's not just you in there. Okay, listen, family. We gotta be ready to tell this to people who don't know Jesus, even as much as it might freak, what do you mean that's not just me in there? 
Sin is living in your unregenerated flesh. And in your flesh there is no good that is not stained and robbed of full goodness by sin's effects. So every time you try to do a pure good, a holy good, the power of sin will keep sabotaging your best intentions, showing you to be incapable of doing it, controlled by a sinful nature. And this sinful nature is so strong that a reasonable attempt isn't even really possible. Rather, a person thus controlled, controlled by sin only persists in doing the evil they don't want to do. And does that look like someone living in freedom? Does this look like someone holy and just and good? No. Sadly, no. If a person never does what they want, if they are completely unable to do good, that person is in the tragic, helpless, powerless, pitiable state of being completely under the domination of sin, lost, and without hope in this world. What a sad testimony is the person apart from Jesus. I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. And for the human pondering this, for the puzzled pagan moralist, a discovery is possible. By the grace of God, puzzlement can grow toward understanding and confusion can be clarified. Verse 21. So I discover in this confused state this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. This is really fascinating. On the one hand, it appears that Paul is now using the word law to describe a principle he discovered as a Jew under the law apart from the Messiah. He's able to come to some conclusion here. On the other hand, given that he has been talking about the law of God up until this point, it seems surprising that he would now use this word to speak of something other than that law. Just kind of some general principle. And maybe it's a bit of both here. He's discovered a principle of the law from the way the law functions in the sin, law, flesh triangle. Namely, that when such a person before Messiah wants to do good, evil is always right there, always present. Did we not see this in the very beginning of the story? Genesis 4. Cain, why are you furious? And why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. And that's the problem, isn't it? That's the problem facing humanity. There is a war going on inside of humanity. A war that humanity is losing. Verse 22. For in my inner self I delight in God's law, which I take to mean that inner self of 2.15 where the law is written. 
but I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner, a POW of sin, to the law of sin in the parts of my body. So if Paul is now continuing to talk about the law throughout this passage, as it seems to me he is doing, what exactly is describing here in regards to that law? There is an inner self where the law is written, the conscience given to all humanity that delights in God's law. It is that part of people, even people who don't know Jesus, that desire to do good. But they see a different kind of law waging war against that desire in their mind, a law that is under the control of sin, possessed by sin, in the power of sin, used as a base of operations by sin, that takes a person outside of Messiah, outside of the empowering and regenerating work of the spirit of Messiah, takes that person a prisoner of war. God's law and their efforts simply do not have what it takes to overcome the power of sin. They are unable to rule over it. Henry David Thoreau famously said that the mass of men lead lives of quiet, desperation. Private Ryan pleads, tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. That sounds like desperation to me. But then we realize that this discovery of feeling like a prisoner of one's own bad desires and actions, this desperation can actually be a gift. For it finally forces one to see that self-help and further law aren't the answer. If you don't think you need any help, how are you possibly going to come to Jesus? We all need to be broken. So So that we then shout this plea which is the plea of every converted person, oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this confusion? Who will deliver me from this war going on inside of me? Is it any wonder that people turn to a bottle for that deliverance, to a needle for that deliverance, to stuff for that deliverance, for adulation, Social media for that deliverance. To try and numb the desperate plea inside their soul. And this is not, I do not think, the cry of a sinner set free, of a person filled with the Spirit of God having been rescued here in chapter 7. Rather, this is the cry of someone painfully aware of their condition on their own, apart from the Messiah, who still needs rescue, who will rescue me. And it is at this point where Paul does something characteristic as he has taken us through his, his past, his, his pre-conversion description and partial biography as a Jew, formerly under the law, apart from the Messiah. He just can't help himself at this moment in the text. He cannot wait to get to Romans 8, the way we can do good, the power by which we can do good. And so he rejoices and he exalts. He steps out of the role of the past for a moment and says, thanks be to God through Jesus. The Messiah and the King. 
He said it already in Romans 3. Since we've compiled this long and sorry record as sinners, both Jews and Gentiles, and proved that we are utterly incapable of living the glorious lives that God wills for us, God did it for us. Wow. Out of sheer generosity, he puts us in right standing with himself. A pure gift. He got us out of the mess we're in. (laughs) Oh, come on, that's good. You made some big messes, people. And he got you out of all of them and restored you to where you always wanted us to be. And he did it by means of Jesus, Messiah. Paul just couldn't stop. He just had to let it out. And then he's like, oh, whoops. Okay, back to what I was saying. So then, verse 25b, as I was saying, with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. The Jew and Paul and all humanity under the law before the Messiah, Paul is saying, is a battleground of two parties who are claiming his allegiance. The law of God, holy and just and good, and that law in possession of the power of evil known as sin. And then who will rescue? Wretched souls torn between these two allegiances, headed towards eschatological death. Who will be able to do for them what the law wanted to do but could not do? You will find it no surprise that we must simply keep reading ahead in Romans to find out. Now, you may ask at this point, at the end of Romans 7 and this sermon, why do we need to know all this? Paul, why, why didn't you just go from 7, 6 to 8, 1 like it seemed you wanted to? Well, the important answer to that question is to know who's the we and why do we need to know all this? One kind of we is the one Thoreau spoke of one of those massive men and women leading lives of quiet desperation who are saying to themselves, what I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way and then I act another, another doing things I absolutely despise. So if I cannot be trusted to figure out what is best for myself and then do it, well, obviously I need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, and then I do it anyway, and my decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. And friend, we must say to our friend that something is sin in league with yourself, which will never be enough to rescue you from that sin. Your effort will never be enough to get you to a place where you will be told at the end of your life that you've lived a good life, that you were a good man or a good woman. And the reason that Romans 7 is here, the reason that we need to know all of this is to come of that place of desperation where you're finally ready to turn to God and ask him for rescue through his son, the Messiah and King Jesus. And it's our job to be there ready with Romans 7 and with Christ. I read the testimony of Craig Lloyd this week who is a Reformed Baptist pastor in Australia. He came from a non-Christian family and God saved him in Romans 7. 
He had some friends who had been faithfully sharing Jesus with him and, and challenging him. They'd been giving him things to read and while they were in university together. And, and he found, he, he said in, in his own words, I found their words to be foolishness and unworthy of serious thought. Months later, he was alone one night, basically just bored out of his mind, on break at university. And there was this Bible that they had given to him on the shelf. And he, for some reason, he thought, well, I had nothing else to do. So I'll read this book. And pulls the book down off the shelf, flips it open, and it falls to Romans. He starts reading. He gets to Romans 7. Listen. The Spirit of God convicted me deeply. I was pierced to my soul. I understood sin. I knew I was a sinner. I knew I was lost before a holy God. I knew I was a wretched man needing to be delivered and that only Jesus could do it. I understood Romans 7 better that day than I have since and I thank God for his grace in opening my heart to its truth. This is the word of God. And it is mighty to save. It is mighty to save. And it'll break the heart of the most unrepentant person that you know, that you think is beyond the, God, uh, the reach of God. Nothing is impossible for God. Nothing. And we best not be ashamed of the good news because it is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. It is revealed to stop confusion in the minds of unbelievers. It is revealed to show them the way that their wretchedness can be fixed so they see the problem are brought to their knees and might believe in Jesus. And if you're here today in that confused state, you can be rescued today. You could be rescued. All you have to do is say, save me. (laughs) Who will deliver me? I'm here and it's you, Jesus. Do it. And he will. There's another kind of we in that question. Why do we need to know all of this? And it is the we that's on the other side of the exclamation, oh wretched man or woman that I am. I hope it's clear by now that my understanding of this text is that Paul has stepped back to that moment as a Jew under the law, apart from the Messiah, on his knees before God, begging to be saved, and he's remembering that he realized who he was in that moment, who all of us were before God's saving work, because that's what we were, wretched, pitiable, and poor. And then he immediately says at that moment back in time with a future orientation spoken as an unbeliever, who will deliver me? Thanks be to God, Jesus will. So that now we are rescued. You're gonna have to, we're gonna have to get to Romans 8 eventually. And he's gonna give the full explanation of how we are rescued and the power by which we now live as believers by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And here's how Romans 7, I believe, 7 to 25 functions for Christians. On the days when you fail, on the days when you sin, in other words, all your days, you do not look back 
and say, I'm still wretched. You look back and see that such sin and failure no longer defines us and doesn't make us wretched, pitiable, and poor anymore. That's who we were, and we are now saved from that kind of identity and our ongoing struggle with sin no longer defines us, nor should cause us to think anymore that we are sold as slaves under sin or that the flesh has the upper hand. That battle has been won. As he stands in victory, you just sing. What did you sing? Since curse has lost its grip on me. Lost its grip. Maybe a little finger on you every now and then. But you're not sold under as a slave under sin anymore. Does the sinful flesh still roil around like a beheaded dragon with claws and a sharp tail inflicting damage on us? Sure. Of course it does. But that's when we turn. <laughs> have you all memorized Scripture? Did you have passages of Scripture in your head? You see, when sin starts talking to you, you got to talk back. When your flesh starts speaking to you, condemning you, you got to preach to yourself. Don't just come for preaching on Sunday. You have to preach to yourself. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, certainly we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Little children, little children, I have written these things to you so that you may not sin, but you are going to sin. And when you do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one who has made propitiation. He has moved the, removed the wrath of all our sin. Preach to yourself. When you sin and you fail and you feel guilty and you feel powerless, what do you say to yourself? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Messiah Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death for what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh. God did for me. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but walk according to what? The Spirit. Oh my goodness. Further, if we read, let me take you to Romans 8. You've been waiting. We are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, 8, 9. That the Spirit of God lives in us. That the Spirit gives life because of His righteousness. That we are brought to life through the Spirit that lives in us. That the, by the Spirit, we're able to put to death the deeds of the body. That the Spirit makes clear we are God's children. That the Spirit helps us in our weakness. That the Spirit empowers us and helps us to do those things that we want to do in accordance with God's heart. Bearing fruit for God, the fruit of the Spirit. Oh, can't you wait to get to Romans 8? Listen, it may be that if we consider ourselves a mature Christian, we need to see our struggle with sin not in terms of Romans 7, but in terms of Romans 8. And let me be clear, dear brothers and sisters, I do not say that to beat you up, but to free you up. 
I do not mean to rob you of a text that may have been your battle cry as a Christian. I'm just trying to free you. I know we will all struggle with sin, but it should not define you or me. Worship team, would you come up? We need to live in the teaching of the New Testament and the New Covenant that we can live free and happy and holy and forgiven. We can live that way. I don't need to despair. And that that can be our normative experience. Have you ever met a really happy Christian? I, not many. I mean, listen, this is a place of safety, right? And honesty. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, Christians are some of the worst advertisements for the good news that have ever lived. We're, I knew this guy named, this is not in the manuscript, this is free. I knew this guy named Andrew Knight. He got me so angry. He would sin and then he would just confess it and then he would just be happy. <laughs> what is wrong with you? You have, to, you have to despair for a while. You have to grab your belt and lash your back. You can't just be happy. You sinned. You're an awful person. No, I'm not. I'm in Jesus. Man, ain't life great? What is wrong with you? Thanks be to God through Jesus Messiah. I am now a saint who sometimes sins. Romans 7, 7 to 25 was my story, but I'm on the other side now. And I can live a happy, holy life forgiven. I can see that the depths of his mercy for me were greater than all of my sin. I see his patience that would wait for me as I constantly roam so far from him. I see a father so tender that he would, weak, he would welcome the weakest, the vilest, the most wretched man that I am. Praise the Lord that though our sins they were many, his mercy is more. Stand and sing that.